your Bibles to uh, Judges chapter 16. Judges chapter 16 will be our scripture reading this morning. Um, But before we begin reading, I want to set the stage uh, as it were. Um, Many of us uh, have childhood children's Bibles, and none of them are complete without the story of Samson. And because we're beginning our reading in the very middle, uh, close to actually rather to the end of the life of Samson, we need to gain a little bit of context before we begin. The book of Judges follows the book of Joshua, which recounts the conquest of the land of promise by the Israelites. And so in essence, what the book of Judges is giving us is a picture of how things are going in the land. And as you begin reading in the beginning of Judges, you can't help but be disappointed. There's a pattern that begins to repeat itself throughout the book of Judges of the people doing what's only right in their own eyes. And as a result, the Lord hands them over to their enemies. They cry out for help, and the Lord raises up a judge. Now, Samson is the last of the judges in this book. In chapter 13, three chapters earlier, Samson's parents were promised that by an angel that they would bear and have a son who would begin to save them from their enemies, the Philistines. As a result, Samson was to be set apart. He was to be holy. And, be, uh, and therefore, he was to be a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite was an individual who took a vow to not drink any alcohol, to not touch anything unclean, especially a dead body, and not to cut their hair. In the previous two chapters of Judges 14 and 15, we find that Samson's hardly the savior that we would want or expect. In chapter 14, instead of helping the Israelites defeat the Philistines, he marries one. He shows us that he's not taking his Nazarite vow very seriously. He casually touches the dead carcass of a lion to gather and harvest honey, thereby breaking his first Nazarite vow. And at his wedding, it's implied that he drinks alcohol. In chapter 15, he gets revenge on the Philistines for giving his wife to his best friend. He burns down their fields by tying torches between the tails of 300 foxes. And as the tension rises between the Philistines and himself, he eventually kills a thousand of them single-handedly with the jawbone of a donkey. Samson's just like the rest of Israel. He does what's right in his own eyes. He's been given this incredible strength and ability from the Lord, and as a result, he has still become, almost in spite of himself, a thorn in the side of the Philistines. At the conclusion of the previous chapter, we're told that Samson judges Israel for 20 years. After 20 years of judging the Israelites, we might be asking ourselves as we begin, or we should be maybe thinking this, has Samson learned his lessons? Has he grown and matured in the last 20 years? Is he finally taking his call seriously? Is he finally trusting in the Lord? Well, we're going to find out. Judges chapter 16, verses 1 through 22. Hear God's word this morning. Samson went to Gaza 
And there he saw a prostitute, and he went into her. The Gazites were told, Samson's come here. And they surrounded the place and set an ambush for him all night at the gate of the city. They kept quiet all night, saying, Let us wait till the light of the morning, then we will kill him. But Samson lay till midnight. And at midnight he arose, took hold of the doors of the gate of the city and the two posts, and pulled them up, bar and all, and put them on his shoulders, and carried them to the top of the hill that is in front of Hebron. After this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we might overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. And Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound them with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber, and she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. And so the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you've mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in the inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. And so while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head wove them into the web, and she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times, and you've not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man. When Delilah saw that he had told her his whole heart, she said and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me his whole heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes, brought him back down to Gaza, 
and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. Thus far, the reading of God's word this morning. Now, brothers and sisters of our Lord Jesus Christ, we didn't have to wait long to see how Samson was doing, did we? In the very first verse of our chapter, we find out that Samson goes down to Gaza, and there he visits a prostitute. Now, the city of Gaza is one of the capital cities of the nation of Philistia, and it's located on the coast, the west coast of Israel, and it's located about 50 miles from Samson's hometown of Zorah. This is about a two-day's journey on foot. One of the questions we might ask ourselves right off the bat is, what's Samson doing way down all the way in Gaza? Aren't there any prostitutes closer to home? As we've already mentioned, Samson's been judging Israel now for 20 years. And while we don't know exactly what he's been doing these past 20 years, it's not a stretch to think that he's continued to be this thorny presence in the Philistines' side. You see, he's this person that the Philistines just can't do anything about. And Samson, well, he knows it. And so because of these abilities and strengths and gifts that the Lord's given him, he goes down to this main capital of Philistia, a two-day's journey, to rub his presence in their faces. See, the way the author indicates that Samson saw a prostitute implies that while he's down in Gaza, rubbing his thorny presence in their faces, he sees a prostitute and, well, Samson just can't help himself. You see, Samson's a man of incredible gifts. And as a result, he can do what he wants, and he's most likely been doing whatever he wants for at least 20 years now. See, Samson's a man that doesn't need to curb his desires for a lack of ability to carry them out. He takes what he wants, and he does what's right in his own eyes. Now, the Gazites, who are Philistines, naturally, they hear that Samson's in their city, and so they surround the place and set an ambush for him. They think they finally have their man. Samson certainly outdone himself this time. He's right in the lion's den, as it were. A mouse in a cage. A man in a heavily fortified city. The Gazites must have been rubbing their hands together as they waited for the sun to rise. The trap had been set, and they must have thought to themselves, there's no way Samson's getting out of this one. But Samson's got other plans. Instead of waiting till sunrise, he gets up at midnight, He goes to the gate of the city and he rips it off its hinges and carries it, as it were, to the hill in front of Hebron. Several things we want to recognize about this feat of strength this morning. The first is just the remarkable amount of strength that would have been required to accomplish this act. See, archaeologists have been able to determine, based on other similar cities, the approximate size of the gate at Gaza. The width and the height of this gate would have been approximately 10 feet by 10 feet. So 10 feet wide, 10 feet tall. And since this was a capital city, 
and gates were meant as defensive fortifications, it more than likely would have been two to three feet thick. And it would have been made of a particularly dense wood, most likely, something like cedar. In addition to that, most gates were plated with metal, something like bronze, in order to keep it from axes being able to hack through and tools of siege like war. These bars that are mentioned in our passage are more than likely the uh, hinges that the bars uh, would fit into sockets that the gates would essentially turn on. And Samson picks the whole contraption up and carries it off. Boys and girls, what do you think a gate like that would weigh? If we do some math, probably would have been somewhere in the neighborhood of 5 to 10 tons. What we're talking about here is Samson putting a small bulldozer on his back, like a one that you might see at a construction site. This is something that even the strongest men of this world could never hope to accomplish. This is superhuman kind of strength. Comic book kind of strength. And Samson doesn't just pick the gate up and toss it to the side and make on his way, but he puts it on his back and he carries it all the way to the hill in front of Hebron. We want to appreciate the significant distance that this would have been. The nearest hill in front of Hebron is 40 miles from Gaza. And brothers and sisters, it's all uphill. Samson would have gained about 3,200 feet of elevation. Now, there aren't any mountains around here, but I'm from the West Coast Rockies. And if any of you have been hiking, as I hear your pastors hiking in the Smoky Mountains, you can appreciate the kind of hike that Samson was about to complete. But just imagine having to do a hike like that with a bulldozer on your back. That's what Samson did. One of the questions that comes to mind immediately is, why did Samson do this? What's he doing? I mean, couldn't he have just as easily discarded the gate a mile or two down the road? I mean, they're still going to have a hard time getting it, aren't they? And while the text doesn't give us an exact reason, I do think that we can confidently make a few conclusions. The first reason is because Samson can. You see, Samson is showing off. He's showing the Philistines this excessive nature of his strength and abilities. He's taunting them. And he's essentially saying to them, you want your gate back? Well, go get it. The second thing is that Hebron is deep in Israel territory. And it's also one of the highest spots in all of Israel. And so it would have been a symbol to all of Israel of Samson's conquering of the Philistines. And the third is that this would have also been a symbol to the Philistines. You see, in Genesis 22:17, God promises that Abraham's descendants would possess the gates of their enemies. Gates of a city were not just significant defensively, but they were also the location where transactions would occur. This phrase possessing the gates communicates the idea of complete conquering and ruling of your enemies. And as a result of this, we see 
that the main capital city of Gaza is now defenseless. Once again, they've been beaten by this single man and humiliated. Brothers and sisters, this is the capstone of Samson's accomplishments. It's an excessive display of the gifts and abilities which God had given to him. What we want to recognize, however, in this account, contrary to uh, previous accounts of his strength, is that nowhere are we told that the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. What we see that the author is communicating to us is that Samson is doing all of this out of his own selfish ambition. And we're left with this thought. Just imagine for a moment if Samson would channel all of these gifts and talents toward his actual calling, his actual mission of furthering God's command, uh, kingdom. Just imagine an army of Israelites being led by Samson. Now, after this whole Gates of Gaza incident, we find that Samson's moved on to another woman, a woman named Delilah. And the Philistines, they learn about this relationship, and so the lords of the Philistines, and there are five lords of the Philistines, they all come to Delilah to bribe her with a fortune to find out the secret of Samson's strength. You see, Samson's been this thorn in the side of the Philistines for 20 years taunting them and toying with them. And we get an idea of how desperately the Philistines want to get rid of, rid of him by the sum of money that they offer to her. 1,100 shekels of silver each. So that's 5,500 total. We want to appreciate this morning how large of a sum of money this was. Now, the shekel, a shekel of silver does fluctuate in value uh, over the course of the Bible, but just for some context... David pays 50 shekels of silver in 2 Samuel 24 for oxen and a threshing floor. Jeremiah pays 17 shekels to purchase a field in Jeremiah 32. And we know from Exodus that the going rate for a slave was 30 shekels, the same price that Jesus was betrayed for in which Judas also purchased a field. Therefore, not only would Delilah become an extraordinarily wealthy woman, but she also would have gained power and influence, being the one who finally got rid of this pest of the Philistines. So Delilah, she begins her seduction, her deception. What's incredible is just how straightforward Delilah is. She just comes right out and asks Samson, look at what she says, tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. As the reader, we're left with this impression. He's not going to be that foolish, is he? He's learned his lesson from his first Philistine wife, right? But Samson's behavior has been getting continually riskier and riskier. It's like he's an adrenaline junkie. And he just can't, uh, he just wants more and more dangerous of a situation. You see, for someone with this kind of a power and this kind of abilities, he's a man playing with fire. And he doesn't think he's going to get burned. He thinks he can handle it. And as things progress, we see Samson continued to cave. The result is this, moving, uh, this rising tension, a moving closer and closer to disaster. 
The author is purposely here slowing down the story. And the result's like watching a train wreck in slow motion. You just can't help but not look away. The first time, uh, the first answer that Samson gives to Delilah is that if he's tied up with fresh bowstrings, then he'll be able to be bound. But they must be fresh, not dried. Well, this sounds like perhaps a somewhat ridiculous answer, but, and Samson probably meant it somewhat as that at the time, but this answer of Samson's not as innocent as it might first appear on the surface. See, as a Nazarite, Samson was not to touch a dead body. But fresh, undried bowstrings were made of sinews or tendons. And so this means that Samson's once again trivializing his Nazarite vow and asking her to tie him up with fresh tendons, something that would have been an object that was unclean for him. The second time he tells her that if he's tied up with fresh ropes, he can be bound. Now, if you've read the previous chapter, you can't help but think to yourself, haven't we seen this before? You see, the tribe of Judah had tried this in chapter 15, and it didn't work. But Delilah, she ties him up anyway, and he breaks free. The third time, Samson reveals just a little bit more. As we read, we're getting closer and closer to the breaking point. This time, he reveals that his strength is connected to his hair. If she would tie his seven locks of hair in a loom, fasten it with a pin, well, then he'll become weak, like any other man. So as Samson's sleeping, Delilah weaves his hair in the loom and fastens it with a pin. But once again, Samson breaks free. And as we get closer and closer to disaster, there's a lesson here for us. You see, Samson thinks he can handle it. And sometimes we can think we can handle it, can't we? That we can handle the temptation. You move along the edges of what you think is acceptable, and you think you're going to be okay. But Proverbs 5.8 says, Keep your path far from her. Don't even go near her door. See, Samson should have been a lot more like Joseph, who, when faced with temptation, fled immediately. He fled so quickly, he left his clothes behind. Brothers and sisters, do you think you're stronger than you are? You see, our culture is saturated with sexual immorality. The internet is this wonderful tool where we can receive much benefit, but it's also a dangerous place, a place for the full of potential for great sin. See, almost nobody goes out to commit serious sin. It's those smaller sins that compound. And before you know it, you've gone further than you ever thought you would. Now at this point, what does Delilah do but pull out the big guns? You see, she appeals to love, like her, his first wife had. You see, Samson doesn't love her if he hasn't told her the truth. If he doesn't reveal everything to her, And we can't help but just disbelieve Samson's foolishness. But Samson's never been one to be able to say no, especially to a woman. He's as weak-willed as he is physically strong. He just can't take her nagging anymore. And so he tells her his whole heart. You see, he's been a Nazarite from his mother's womb. I can't help but ask ourselves, 
Samson, you've not been much of a Nazarite. I mean, Samson, you've casually broken almost every other one of your Nazarite vows to date. You really think that's where your strength lies? And Delilah, she calls the Philistines once more because she tells them that Samson has told her his whole heart. And so as, she's, as he is sleeping on her lap, she has a man shave off his seven locks of hair and then begins to torment him again, telling him that the Philistines are upon him. And it's here in the story of Samson that we hear perhaps the most tragic statement. He awoke from his sleep and said, I'll go out as at other times and break myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. The Lord had left Samson, and he didn't even know it. We're left with this question. Why didn't Samson just leave immediately after telling Delilah the truth? But instead, what does he do? He falls asleep peacefully on her lap. I believe the answer to this question is twofold. The first is the deceptive nature of sin. Rabbi Zacharias once said, quite ironically, sin will take you further than you want to go, keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. You see, people who are caught in the clutches of sin, especially habitual sin, they deceive themselves by thinking they're never going to get caught. There won't be consequences. They play games with their sins. Like the alcoholic who believes that he can stop whenever he wants. Nobody really notices anyway. Until that devastating consequence of a drunk driving crash brings the reality of their sinful lifestyle roaring to the surface. You see, Samson is deceived by sin. But the second thing is this. Samson, when he awoke, would have certainly realized that his hair had been cut off. A lifetime of growing hair, and Samson's at least 40 years old here, would have weighed quite a bit. But the fact that it tells us that he's going to go out as before tells us that he really didn't believe that his hair or his Nazarite vow was the true source of his strength. You see, he'd come to believe that his strength was simply his own. That no matter what he did, how he lived, he couldn't lose it. Samson was blind to his dependency on God's grace. He'd come to see his strength as a right and not a gift of God's mercy. God leaves Samson at his height, but as you'll see in the concluding verses of chapter 16, if you read them, God will meet him at his lowest. Brothers and sisters, this is the nature of grace. You see, you're never too bad. You're never too lost. You're never too far gone for God's grace. But you can be too good. You can be too strong. You can be too righteous. All you have to do is look at the Pharisees. What did Jesus tell them? I came to save sinners. You see, the challenge for us is that we often presume that we are strong enough. We presume on God's grace. See, Samson thinks he's God's gift to mankind. 
And in a way, he kind of was. But he, his problem is just like ours in that we don't want to humble ourselves and acknowledge our own lowness. We think we, want, we need to improve ourselves. That God's only going to accept us if we make ourselves acceptable. But by this, we're only saying to God that he only accepts those who make themselves acceptable. But God is relentless in reminding us that he's a God of grace. And these relentless reminders can be painful. And yet the good news is that Christ provides everything. We try to maximize our good, but we need saving even from our good works because they too are stained with sin. And this is the paradox of the gospel. You see, you can be too good for Jesus to save. See, what keeps people from heaven is not that they're beyond the reach of God's grace. It's that they don't think they need God's grace. They want grace on their own terms. Samson functionally believes he could live without God. And that's the challenge for us this morning. I hope we all profess that everything is of grace. The five solas of the Reformation included sola gratia, by grace alone. And yet it can be easy to live lives very differently. And we need then reminding that it's but by the grace of God go I. It's all grace. Samson reaps the consequences of his sin, of his folly. You see, Samson was blind to his need of God's grace and help. He was blind to the consequences that his sin would reap. This man whose life was full of contradictions, full of ironies, well, they've all come to full fruition. One commentator puts it this way. Overnight, this man is transformed from one whose life is governed by sight, whose actions are determined by what's right in his own eyes into a man with his eyes gouged out. Overnight, a life of coming and going as he pleases turns into a life of bondage and imprisonment. Overnight, the person who had spent his life insulting and humiliating others has become the object of their humiliation. Overnight, a man with the highest conceivable calling, the divinely commissioned agent of deliverance for Israel, is cast down to the lowest possible position imaginable. Grinding flour for others in prison. Everything's lost. Samson's a grand failure. At this point, we might come to think that this has got to be the end. Samson's finally got what he deserved. He'd been presuming on God's grace and gifts for too long, and God finally left him, finally gave up on him. However, what do we read in the final verse of our passage this morning? But the hair of his head began to grow again, after it had been shaved. Of course, this statement by itself is not an entirely surprising statement. This is what hair does, after all, for most of us. But the fact that the author makes this statement leaves us with hope. See, perhaps God's not done with this man quite yet. And isn't that, then, what we see here, that how God operates? 
As we see the story of redemption in the Bible, God regularly leaves these rays of hope at the end of judgment. Back in the Garden of Eden, it was the promise that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the snake. In Noah's day, it was a rainbow. For Israel, it was that God would restore them back to the land of promise after their deportation to Babylon. And the ultimate ray of hope was that a Savior would be born who wouldn't just begin to save his people, but would completely and finally save them. And the Savior was Jesus of Nazareth. He came and he died so that Samson's sin, so that your sin could be forgiven, so that you can have life. So that your eyes that are naturally blinded by your own sins can be made to see. So that your tendencies to skirt the edges of what's acceptable can be looked over. Throughout Samson's life, what we see is the patient faithfulness of our God. You see, God's been faithful to Samson for so many years. He's been patiently, mercifully dealing with him. Dealing with him not according to his sins. Until Samson goes too far and the Lord leaves him. But this last verse reveals an incredible truth. This leaving of Samson's not for good. Samson's not totally abandoned. None of us are ever totally abandoned. And yet Jesus Christ was completely abandoned. Jesus Christ experienced the complete absence of the presence of the Father on the cross so that you never have to. Jesus had presumed on God's grace. So God humbled him. But this humbling was not permanent. What we see then in Samson is God's faithful relentless grace. God loves us so much that at times he will mercifully discipline us. He'll bring consequences for our sins into our lives. But brothers and sisters, this is not a punitive action. It's rather purpose is to draw us into humility, to humble us into repentance. This is the love and faithfulness of our God. And it's only possible through the work and life of Jesus Christ. So look to the one this morning who loves you. Whose relentless grace and love will never give up on any of his children. And out of that wonderful, beautiful, incredible reality. Walk with him in obedience. Flee from sin. Trusting that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on that last day. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we pray you would keep us humble. Father, keep us on our knees, seeing our need for your grace. We thank you that you promise to never leave us or forsake us. That because of Christ, you are faithful God. You're our strong tower and refuge. And Lord, if there be any among us who are struggling in sin, caught in a pattern of sin, would you by your spirit humble them and open their eyes to see your good news, to see the freedom that's found in Jesus. 
Would you impart into each of us a greater and greater sense of your incredible faithfulness, your relentless grace and love in Jesus Christ? Would you help us to live lives of gratitude and never presume on your grace? Would your church be built up and encouraged by the body, working and moving together? In the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.